If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Kate Clark, one of your regular hosts here, and I have Alex Wilhelm from Crunchbase News with me today. Hey, Alex, what's up? Uh, not much. I'm in Providence. It's cold. I have a chilled Red Bull, and uh, I'm in a good mood. Oh, you went for a Red Bull, not an espresso shot. Uh, I did. This is way past my normal like caffeine bedtime, but for Equity, I like to have a bit more pep, and uh, mm-hmm. I didn't want to make anything, so I went with the most disgusting beverage in the world. Um, yeah, you definitely did. But it's for the listeners, Kate. You know, we got we to gotta turn up. So here we are. I know. Are. We got to stay caffeinated. It was a busy week as usual. We have news across the spectrum. So buckle in for some IPO updates, Y Combinator demo days, which I attended, some big rounds and two new unicorns. And if we have time, Paris. It's going to be good. Uh, but the first story that's up, you didn't want to talk about because I think you're, yeah. you said it was boring. What's up with that? Well, <laughs> I just, okay, it's Lyft IPO and everybody knows we love to talk IPOs on the show and that's half the point, but I'm just getting a little bit tired of covering the Lyft IPO. I'd be really happy if it just kind of finished already and we could stop talking about it. Um, Well, uh, the news we have is actually pointing towards it getting done, if that helps. Mm -hmm. Um, I promise to be brief, everybody, so I'm going to kind of run through this, but uh, Lyft's IPO, according to media reports, is already oversubscribed, which means that there's more demand um, than shares available, which is where you want to be if you're looking to go public. The company is shooting for a stated range of $62 to $68 per share, which works up to a valuation of around $21 to $23 billion. Now, keep in mind, they're worth about $15, $15.1 the last private round. But since it's oversubscribed, we could see them actually raise at a higher price and therefore raise more money. And as you can kind of imagine, this bodes well for Uber's IPO, which is coming around the corner, which I'm sure Kate is excited about. So we can kind of hand one off and then get right into the next one. Um, Kate, were you surprised that they're already oversubscribed? I thought it was, even for Lyft's IPO, a bit fast. Um, I wasn't terribly surprised. I feel like this has got to be one of the most um, highly anticipated IPOs, um, you know, of course, aside from Uber since, you know, Facebook. But um, I was curious uh, for you, how does this stack up against other IPOs in the last year or so? Well, it's just, it's very, very different. I think the, the most recent Cognate, I would say, is Snap, which had a large market opportunity. It had large revenues, was worth lots and lots of billions of dollars, and also was deeply unprofitable. Now, that hasn't gone particularly well, but I don't think um, we have to think about Snap's result and, t- and kind of extrapolate that towards Lyft. Uh, but the amount of attention this is getting reminds me of Snap's offering. It was that kind of like pan-media outside of the tech world, big on CNBC, kind of, you know, it has that, uh, that, uh, that mass market appeal, for lack of a better word. Yeah, like you just mentioned, we all kind of know how Snap fared following its IPO, though at the time I, I was t- thought it was going to, I pretty much thought the opposite would happen, but <laughs> for, for, which again, you know, I'm often wrong about my predictions, but what do you think about Lyft? How do you think it'll fare in the, um, say in the next year? I mean, it's really hard to say. Uh, I'm of two minds, I guess is what I'm actually trying to say. So one, it's probably going to do well out the gate. There's a lot of demand mm-hmm. for it. It's really hot. Oh, yeah. People are interested. I'm sure there's retail demand, kind of regular folks that want to get in. Um, but their roadshow, uh, which uh, the excellent uh, Shira Ovid from Bloomberg um, tweeted pictures out of, really kind of was eye-catching. And I know I promised to be quick, so I'll try to keep this brief, but there was a slide of their expected future results. Like, how will our margins improve over time? Mm-hmm. And out in the future, if I recall the slide correctly, they think that their adjusted EBITDA 
margin uh, will be about 20%. Now, adjusted EBITDA is a stat that's even more loose than EBITDA itself because it rips out things like share-based um, compensation and some other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So if they're only going to get to like a 20% adjusted EBITDA margin, like how profitable are they ever going to be on a gap basis? So uh, to me, I wonder if this ride-sharing boom is still kind of contingent on uh, driverless cars to make it work long-term. And if that's the case, there could be a really long period of time in which Lyft and Uber still consume buckets of cash. And if investors want to pay for that, maybe. But there's going to be dilution, follow-on offerings, maybe. It's it's, it's a less settled bet than I think a lot of people expected for these companies with so many billions in raised capital and so many years down the road. Mm Mm-hmm. I, it's it's 2019. It's a risk-on moment. You know, markets are up. The big five are worth $4 trillion again. And Lyft is oversubscribed. I mean, I've been calling for a correction for like seven years, and I've been wrong. So I don't want to like really put a number on it, but there's Yeah, maybe questions. we'll wait another seven years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, I promise to be quick so we can move on. Now, we're going to go yeah. from the oldest of companies to like the youngest of companies. And we're going to talk about everyone's favorite part of Silicon Valley's year, which is YC Demo Day. And Kate, you... Uh, went there for us. What's up? Yeah, I went to YC Demo Day. It was my first time going, and I think I went at a very interesting time. As we've talked about a lot on this show already, that there's been a lot of changes um, at Y Combinator, um, including that they just have massive cohorts now. So this cohort was, um, it was about 200 companies, and they had two stages. So I was only able to sit at one stage and watch about you know 100 or so of those companies make their pitches, and it was really fun. They each get two minutes to sort of make their spiel and their spiel is basically this is what we do and this is our market size and we're you know here's our stats that are up and to the right and we're going to be just um, a huge mega company that's not a lot of time so two minutes there must be a lot of like almost cookie cutter sounding pitches there's a lot of similarity between them it's extremely fast and it does feel i mean obviously it's a lot of different businesses from food delivery to telehealth to you know, consumer tech startups and even like social media apps and whatever. So they're all different. But yes, the pitches definitely feel the same. And people have asked me like, hey, what were your favorites? And I've had a really hard time even remembering (laughs) more than a couple. Like I, it's truly very difficult. Like, of course, I remember the ones that I had already sort of chatted with, you know, personally, like whether that be before they did their pitch just in person or ahead of time Mm -hmm. for, for stories on TechCrunch. But like, it's pretty tough when you only have two minutes to really make any kind of impression. So I'm, I'm surprised if like demo day is actually a way in which these companies end up attracting a lot of investment. Well, I mean, it's a question because back, you know, I, I haven't been to demo day in like three or four years now, so I'm super out of date. So I'm glad you were there on the ground. But like back in when I was there, like the founders would all wear the same color shirt and they'd be like, we're going to be over in that part of the room afterwards and try to get investors to come to them. But it sounds like this demo day had a bit more pre-raising and higher valuations. And it feels almost like the, the more maturity at the startup level or are we just seeing higher prices? Yeah, you know, I don't think they're more mature. And I, I, I did hear from a lot of people at Demo Day that they felt like the the prices the startups were charging for equity, you know, valuation were really high. Um, they were saying a lot of them had 10 million or above. And I went and asked um, Michael Siebel, who's the CEO of YC, like, hey, are, are they more expensive? And he was like, you know, not really. Like we, but he also, <laughs> but he also said like, we let, we work with every single startup to develop personalized fund- fundraising plans and they decide what they want to raise and they decide what valuation like you know some people were were on twitter being like i think yc is telling all their startups to charge more than 10 million dollars valuation and 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 michael siebel was like no we're definitely not telling them to do that like they decide 
But um, yeah, I mean, I think at the same time, people did seem to think that this was a more expensive year and then there were so many more companies. Mm -hmm. So it just felt like I think what we talked about before, it just felt like a lot of noise. Um, But, you know, there was also a lot of great companies and I'm and a lot of them have already been funded, um, which I just wrote a story for TechCrunch about. So if you want to know more about which startups actually had like sizable rounds before Demo Day um, and didn't even pitch, you can read that story. Yeah, I was uh, I was talking to some investors that were there uh, via text. And there was much eye rolling about prices. And I don't I don't know if that's new, but it felt like there was more grumbling this year than ever before. And there was some debate on, on Twitter. I don't know if everyone else saw this, but people were talking about like, you know, is 10 million or even 20 million pre or post good uh, or even roughly fair for a YC back company at this stage? And some investors were like, look, if you really believe in them, you should just cut the check and don't worry about the price because if you think it's going to go up to, you know, 10 billion, whatever. What, what I think what I think you might find interesting and or already know is um, I did check some data and the median seed valuation in 2018 was 10 million. Um, so that so in a way, I'm like, OK, that's super fair that YC are, are charging that. But a lot of seed stage companies are two to three years old. Yes. Like a lot, YC startups are what, like, you know, maybe three months old. Some of them, of course, are, um, you know, were, are older, yes, and I and I um, you know, I I chatted with one uh, medical device company that was like three years old, and they already raised two million dollars before going into YC. But that's different than um, you know, a company entering YC with like barely an idea and then coming out with five million dollars, which exactly. happens. Exactly. I I don't think most companies at YC are worth ten million pre or post because they're not mature enough yet. Some of them certainly are exceptions, but extrapolating the exception to the majority and kind of making the exception the rule is going to lead to some pain points because if, if they're going to raise, I don't know, one or two million in like regular seed money and then are going to go look for a seed extension, they're not going to want to raise it at a flat valuation, right? They're going to want to have a valuation increase and right. you're going to have to have some really material progress because there's this weird bit between seed, well, now we have pre-seed seed, seed extension, then A, but you know, you mm-hmm. got to get to a, the, the days of A's being one million ARR and you're good are behind us. So how... <laughs> How much you have to raise to get to like what you know two million ARR or whatever to raise a Series A? It's just gonna be tough, right? And I, I mean, I think like what I was saying about Michael Siebel, I think you know YC knows all this stuff, and they're very, I'm sure they're really transparent with startups, and they were like, hey guys, like funding, you know, raising this much money isn't everything. Like you need to be smart and think about the future. And I'm certain like those conversations are going on internally. Yeah. Well, it's a big class. Some of them will be winners. Some of them will not be. Kind of the standard YC out. Um, if you had to uh, to pick one startup, it would be Unicorn, right? The uh, the scooter startup that was at the demo day. Everyone was very excited that that, about that. I know. So you can, Unicorn allows you to uh, rent a scooter for a month. Why not just buy one? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. So you, they, I think they're going to set them up in apartment lobbies um, and things like that. And so that way, if you're like, I don't know. I mean, people were like, that's oh, the stupidest idea yes. ever. But like, there are just a lot of stupid ideas. So I wasn't really <laughs> like blown away by that being the stupidest, but it's stupid. To be clear, though, that we're not really saying stupid as a pejorative. Some ideas start off as pretty dumb and end up being awesome and huge. And that's a perfectly fine oh, way yeah. for a startup. I wish them to, the best, for yeah. sure. Although I think the name Unicorn is so Bad. Yes, they 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 open themselves up for derision by calling themselves unicorn and being a scooter startup. Like that's just asking for it. But at the same time, Godspeed everyone. I hope your startups go well and all that. Um, speaking of startups that have done well, though, uh, there was a three hundred million dollar round this week. Open door raised, and if you recall, this was a round that was rumored for some time, but it was supposed to be. I think it was. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Two hundred million at a three point seven. Uh, ended up being 300 million at 3.8, so 100 million more both on uh, the raise and valuation. 
Um, and I have an investor list. So if you're out there keeping score, this is uh, General Atlantic with participation from Hawk Equity, the SoftBank Vision Fund, of course, Access Technology Ventures, Lenar Corporation, Fifth Wall Ventures, SV Angel, Norwest Venture Partners, NEA, GGV, Coastal Ventures, and GV, along with some other folks. So everyone was around for this one. This was like the the late stage party round, I want to say. I don't know what we call that in this this year in time. But they've now raised uh, $1.3 billion in equity and $3 billion in debt, according to TechCrunch.com. Exactly. That's an enormous amount of capital. Um, but there's a reason why they raised so much debt. It's because Open Door, if you recall, actually buys homes from people and then sells them. So if you're going to sit in between uh, real estate transactions, you need a lot of capital to be able to purchase assets and keep them on your books. And, I, you know, uh, buying and selling a home traditionally is terrible. So they got a big market. Um, but the, the risk here, and everyone kind of knows this, is what happens in a recession. You know, if you're stuck holding a lot of uh, assets that decline in value, you can get wiped out. But smart people are working on this and smart investors putting money into it. So presumably they have an answer, at least, right, Kate, to figure out how to avoid risk of that sort, I presume. Well, you sure hope so if they're raising that kind of money. Yeah, but we've had moments in which the real estate market has moved dramatically in our history. I I should say that, um, interestingly, the um, buzziest startup to come out of YC, uh, according to sources, valued at $75 million, is actually almost the same business model. They're buying out homes fully, and then they're allowing customers to pay them off month by month, depending on their income. And this company is called Zero Down. Yeah, I saw this. You get like equity tokens in some capacity if you stay in a home long enough. Is that correct? I don't know fully. The the gist that I'm aware of, just looking at their website a bit, is is that is that you know you, they're they're purchasing purchasing the home for you. It's a new model of financing a home. Blah blah blah. Well, I'm in favor of anything that helps make that easier because I just think it's amazing that people used to you know, go to a bank and then pray to get a loan at a rate that may or may not be competitive. And it was super opaque and, and hard to see inside of. So if we can make that easier and better and more accessible, I'm all in favor of it. Yeah, it seems like there are a lot of companies doing this. Have you have you heard of Divi? Is that uh, D-I-V-Y or D-I-V-V-Y? D-I-V-V-Y. I'm, I'm messing with you. I, don't, I haven't heard of either one. So just tell me what it does. <laughs> Uh, I think it does the same thing. I'm just I'm just throwing it out there because it feels like there's kind of a growing little community of these well-funded startups. And I mean, uh, zero down, people were just astounded because it it had it was raising at such a high valuation. Um, but that was because its founders are the same. Uh, well, one of its co-founders was the co-founder of Zenefits. Zenefits, uh, if you don't recall, was the one of the quickest ever companies to a unicorn status, and then it had a very public falling apart uh, when it kind of broke the law on insurance brokerage licenses, if I'm getting my details correct, and has now been in kind of a recovery period for some time after picking up, oh, hell, was it David Sachs as interim CEO for a chunk there? I think so. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Zenefits, given that it has gone through the process of, I think it's called blitz scaling now, a founder from that company would have a good pedigree, uh, at least in terms of venture capital um, expectations. And so that's probably why they could raise. That is exactly why. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Open Door, $3.8 billion, tons more capital in the bank. And so at a minimum, the, there's a top end to this this niche we're talking about. I don't know who's going to win, but we could see some M&A maybe if someone slows down. It'd be fun to see some consolidation. Um, but we'll leave that for another month. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. In the meantime, we have, oh, actually some really interesting news. I'm going to hand this over to Kate. Kate, tell me. We have two new unicorns this week, and they are both female-founded unicorns. Um, and that, like everybody should know, there are not a lot of female-founded unicorns out there. So for there to be two new ones, um, both really well-known companies, both really well-known consumer companies, um, that's just 
a really um, just fabulous thing to have happen. So the first one to announce their round was Glossier. And Glossier, if you don't know them, is a beauty brand. And it's really just it's got a major social media following. It has a ton of cult users. People are just absolutely obsessed with their Glossier products. Um, The company was founded by Emily Weiss, uh, who started it as a blog when she was working at Vogue. Um, She started a blog called Into the Gloss. And that just turned into, you know, it's her, her own makeup brand that's now a billion dollar business. Um, so Glossier raised this $100 million Series D in a round led by Sequoia Capital at a um, valuation of $1.2 billion, which was um, actually triple the valuation that it had at its Series C in 2018 with a $52 million round. Um so Glossier's valuation has just been sort of tumbling and, and, and is now just crossed into the the unicorn uh, territory for the first time. Yeah. One thing uh, we were talking about this before the show that we've seen is that Glossier's raised very regularly. So I think they raised their A in 14, their A1 in 2015, B in 16, C in 18, and now D in 19. But as you know, it's only the third month of this year. So it's not like we're, we're deep into the uh, 2019 period. So it's, it's, it's quick. It's quick. It is quick. And and they told, you know, they Emily Weiss spoke with the Wall Street Journal about this funding round and the Wall Street Journal had asked her, you know, are you are you going to go public soon? And she was kind of like, well, it's definitely possible, but like it's not, you know, and of course anyone can say that. But she she seemed to be like it's it's clearly on her mind. It could happen maybe in 2020. You know, she didn't give a timeline, but it does seem like with this kind of momentum that that could be something definitely happening. Although my um my gut says that Glossier is going to be acquired. There are just so many big brands in the makeup space that have acquired startups before and like definitely have the ability to make an acquisition like this. So I would I would not be surprised to see that. It's going to cost though, because so this this news broke and my team was writing about it. And uh, we even had some people from Crunchbase, which, which uh, kind of owns Crunchbase News. Well, definitely owns it. I don't know the right way to say that. Uh, anyways, that relationship, there you go. Um, and people were really stoked that we were writing about Glossier because they all had very big opinions about its products. They were big fans. And I learned about things like boy brow, which is a thing. Um, and about the, Mm, yeah, I was just about to say boy brow is my absolute favorite Glossier product. I was also informed during this conversation that, um, eyebrows are the picture, the window frame of the, the soul or, oh, there was a quote. It was hilarious. Um, I learned many things, uh, (laughs) during this conversation and I was just amazed at how many people at the company were like, oh, Glossier, bam, I've got opinions. I've got thoughts. And so to me, that speaks to a lot of probably high levels of retention, probably high spend per customer on a high margin product. This could be a really sick business because um, I, I, if I'm tell me if I'm wrong, Kate, but like I think beauty products as a general rule have very high margins. Yeah. And I think what's also true and maybe this, that's why perhaps um, VCs haven't been as interested in beauty startups before it. They haven't. A lot of these great brands just haven't been able to raise capital. So Glossier is, I think, really changing that. And I think we'll see a lot more investment in that space because of that. And so Glossier, as we just mentioned, has raised, let's see, like mm, about $200 million. And they've used that now to start actually launching um, spinoff brands. Because I don't know if you know this, Alex, but Glossier is pretty much known for makeup that you women wear that doesn't actually look like they're wearing makeup. Okay. So it's it's kind of tar- yeah. So it's kind of targeting this very natural beauty look, which Emily Weiss is kind of known for. She's she's you got a very much naturally. She's the natural beauty, and um, so she's created a lot of products that sort of um, echo her look. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of California girl, like dewy face, like just. And, and so now now she's trying to cater to 
other people who maybe want some bright pink eyeshadow, some blue eyeliner, just things that are a little more outside the box. And just a couple weeks ago, Glossier launched a brand called Glossier Play that is like all these loud pieces of makeup. And that's how they've sort of been using this this new investment. And by loud, you mean more colorful, a bit more in your face, yes. less quote unquote natural as the original brand focused on. Exactly. And just one last question before we move on, because I'm here to learn. Um, There's more space in the market for other brands for them to spin out. It isn't like they do one loud and one natural and that's it. I presume there's other niches in the beauty space they can actually uh, work into. Definitely. And I think think we've already seen them be really innovative and and sort of introducing these new products that we hadn't really thought of like boy brow is not something that it's like wax for your eyebrow I'm not even I was about to ask I'm like okay fine what is it (laughs) so it's hard to explain but like it's not so usually women will wear like an eyebrow um, liner it's like putting eyeliner on your eyebrows to make them darker or whatever but this is like almost like paint someone someone listening is probably thinking my description (laughs) is so bad but I don't know exactly how to describe it it's okay. It's like mascara for your eyebrows. That's what it is. Mascara is the thing you put on your eye, la- uh, your eyelashes. Yes, and this is like putting it on your eyebrows to make them look more defined. Okay, got it. I'm learning. One last question about money, though. Continuing my education here about Glossier, it, do they sell anything on a recurring basis? And I know I'm a SaaS dork, but like I'm kind of oh subscription based. Um, I don't. I want to say they don't actually. I I, I can't think because I've I have bought things from them before and I definitely wouldn't have done it if it was subscription based because I don't believe in those things. But um. Okay. Because Rent the Runway, our, our next company does have a subscription component, and that was really eye-catching to me. So I was curious if they shared that, but it sounds like no. Yeah, I mean, don't quote me on that, but I I don't think they do. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's something they they later introduce some kind of like you know Birchbox style monthly little box of of makeup. I was thinking more like the Amazon approach of like, I need one boy brow per month, mail it to me on the first. Cause I use one of these each month. Like you could buy like, I don't know, like Tide through Amazon, right? On a recurring basis. Yeah, you can. And that's not a bad idea. Um, though I, again, I personally wouldn't do that because makeup is really expensive and, and Glossier is great and the prices are definitely affordable, but it's still makeup that it's just another added expense that I don't think we really want to have monthly if we don't absolutely have right. to. But anyway, we're getting we're getting a bit off topic. So <laughs> <It's fine>. let's let's <laughs> let's move on to our next female founded unicorn, and this is Rent the Runway. Rent the Runway kind of became famous as just this service where you could um, rent designer dresses and then wear them to special events and then send them back. Because of course, uh, buying one dress for one event can be you know what hundreds of dollars. So if you use Rent the Runway, you can rent a really nice dress that may cost, you know, tons and tons of money, but you get it at a low price and then you just return it. So the company raised $125 million in a round led by Franklin Templeton Investments and Bain Capital Ventures. And this round valued them at $1 billion and it brought their total raise to date to $337 million. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And Franklin Templeton, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, I only know them because they used to sponsor like PBS when I was growing up. I don't know what that tells me about them other than that they're old, but I had not seen them ever in a unicorn that I can recall. So it's kind of a notable investor, I'd say, Kate. It, it is. And I yeah, I had asked you about this before we taped, like, who the hell is that? And I, I think, you know, good for them. I think Rent the Runway is, is a really successful business. Um, it's not something I've ever used, but it, it seems like they're figuring out sort of how to reach new customers. They've, they've opened five standalone brick and mortar stores so that you can actually go in and, you know, interact with some of the garments and sort of decide what you want to rent. Um, and then they also have um, th- multiple subscription offerings um, to sort of beef up 
that initial core offering of just like rent, renting dresses. Uh, this is another example of, of, of a potentially high margin business because if you if you rent clothing out, you can probably model how much money you need to bring in kind of per item over time. And provided the economics make sense, it scales reasonably well. But yeah, I think you're right about customer acquisition. That's going to be tricky. I wonder if they'll get a lot of kind of walk-ins just to see people that kind of want to go and kind of like touch things to make sure it's real before they, they spend money on it. Because if so, brick and mortar could be a pretty effective almost lead gen tool for their online business. Yeah, it seems to me like that will help them. Like I'm still one of those people that won't order clothes online at all. Like I just absolutely won't do it. So I think like in order for me to interact or use Rent the Runway, I'd have to have mm. a store. So, but I don't know how common that that sort of um, way of thinking still is. And if what I'm just a late adopter to many things, we'll see. I mean, I just bought my first ever like pair of shoes online a few months ago. So I, I think we're kind of both late to that party because everyone else has been doing that for like 10 years now. And I was just lazy about it. I didn't want to deal with websites. I just wanted to go to the store and like walk out with shoes. You know, like I need shoes today because I broke my shoes. But that's but the thing is, that's the opposite of lazy, though, because lazy would be ordering it online. I think people should go into the store and look around and see, you know, check see what their options are and make sure their clothes actually fit. That's that's why I do it. So I think you're you're not lazy at all if you're actually going into stores. Well, you heard it here first, everyone. Uh, I'm not lazy, and that's why I only wear t-shirts and uh, crappy jeans. It's uh, it's not laziness. It's style. Let me just end the Rent the Runway thing on one note because I, I want to just name the two women that started the company. And that's Jennifer Hyman and Jennifer Fleiss. Yes, they're both named Jennifer. And Jennifer Hyman posted a really awesome photo on Twitter you should go check out. And it's her and she's very pregnant. And she says that um, for anyone who has ever doubted what women can achieve when we have the funding and opportunity, let this photo serve as evidence that we can do it and become unicorns pregnant and in heels. There you go. Uh, and we will link to that tweet in the post on tc.com for this uh, this episode. So you can also find it there if you can't find her on Twitter. Um, now, last this week, uh, something that I kind of threw in because I am uh, always keeping an eye on the scooter beat. I know everyone loves to hear scooter ramblings. Uh, but Paris is kind of working on a potential scooter tax. And according to, um, I think it was TC, uh, there's like 15,000 scooters uh, of all forms across Paris. Paris is a very small city by geographic area. And so they're thinking about putting out a, a kind of a, a per scooter per year fee of uh, dozens of euros per year, like up to 50 or 60 euro per year. And I was just thinking about this and I, I'm I'm curious how this could change the economics of the scooter business if this was adopted more, more broadly. Because um, if there's an added cost to these scooters, there's more for them to kind of recoup as they go through their life cycle, they would have to last longer to do more rides, to generate margin, to pay that. And uh, it struck me as an interesting kind of maybe, uh, I don't know, note in the wind about the scooter industry, which we know has had some issues lately. I think there were some layoffs over at Bird, for example. Yeah, there were. I mean, I think, and I remember what what Bird said at the time was just this this was part of their annual reviews. You know, a lot of companies do review each of their employees uh, kind of like around February, it seems like after the year's wrapped and then they decide who are the low hanging fruit we need to like just throw out the door. But of course they don't say it like that, but you know, and, but I actually hadn't heard about this scooter Paris tax till you just said it. So I'm very interested in the story. And I, I, uh, I wonder how um, bird and Lime and the other companies that are in Paris react. And when, when these companies first went to Paris, I remember thinking like, just from what I know about Parisian culture and having been there and whatever, like just did not think they would stand to have scooters just just littering their streets and i'm actually surprised this there are scooters there still well if you're if you're in paris uh send us an email because we would love to kind of know on the ground i have not been to paris since i was like five um i'm planning on going this year or early next year but it's uh, that's not quite enough time for this so if, if you have notes we'd love to hear them um 
And just in contrast, I, I did a little bit of research uh, about the SF. Remember when they had like the everyone pitched to kind of bring their scooters to SF and they picked a couple of people. And I was going through some articles about that. And I found a quote that was interesting. The the I think it was the SFMTA was looking to recoup um, costs from that program by charging each provider like 25K per year as a permit fee, uh, which is just not that much money and certainly a lot less than we're talking about from this uh, scooter tax that Paris is um, is thinking about. And so maybe maybe we're not quite as anti-tech progress as we think we are in San Francisco. Maybe it's a little bit more lax um, than we get credit for. I don't know if that's a fair way to think about it, but it's kind of what hit me. I mean, I think this tax is a really is an inevitable development in the scooter wars or scooter whatever. I think like these kind of things are going to start happening probably all over the world. I mean, when I was in Austin last week for South by Southwest, I I could truly not believe how many scooters were there. I have never seen more scooters in my life and also a ton of people actually riding them which was very strange to see because i think in san francisco i do see scooters but i very rarely see anybody on them yeah that's kind of stopped i think i don't know if that's winter or a rain or just a it used to be there was a lime and bird every four feet and now you have to go find one that's like locked up it's, it's a different vibe um but okay do you think there was enough ridership to make that number of scooters feasible in austin or was it still an oversupply or glut of hardware Eh, it was still a glut of hardware, but like, with that said, there were a ton of people riding them, so eh, it's kind of hard to say. I was I was very surprised at the amount of people riding them, and I was with another TechCrunch reporter, and I tried to get us both to go on a ride, but he was too afraid, so we didn't. Are you going to name who that was? It was Lucas Matney, TechCrunch's VR, VR reporter. Lucas? He is very tall. He couldn't, yeah, he was... I really, I've done it a lot and I actually really enjoy it. So I was looking forward to using it to get to our next um, meeting we had, but mm-hmm. he genuinely too afraid. Lucas Madney, uh, TechCrunch's venture capital reporter and all around good guy, just as a data point. Uh, <laughs> okay, but that is all we have time for this week. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Kate, as yes, always, love to you. talk to you. Thank you for going to Demo Day for us. And mm-hmm. uh, we'll be back in seven days, everybody. So hang tight. Okay, bye. All right, bye. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here.